succumb to the Barry Bunyan husbands, you fun-sized Duncans. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. If you're a brand new listener, maybe listen to some earlier podcasts to familiarise yourself with the lore of this podcast. Don't go in without a swimming cap. Don't go in without armbands. The water's too deep. There's too much chlorine. If you're a regular listener, if you're a hate-filled hazel or a vertical George, you know the crack. Welcome back, you cunts. I want to say thank you to everybody for the the lovely feedback for last week's podcast. Um, I had so many kind messages, lots and lots and lots of kind messages from people. Um, because last week I revealed that I'm autistic and I found out that I'm autistic. And I just had tons of lovely messages of support because that was kind of a tough, a tough-ish podcast to do last week. Because I was speaking about shit that I hadn't processed. And I was kind of processing it live. And I still haven't really processed it. I got so many people who completely and utterly related to my experience so much. That they themselves are now wondering if they're possibly autistic or neurodivergent in some way. Because my experience of being in school rang true with a lot of people. And that's the reason I spoke about it to try and reduce stigma and to be open about it. And it doesn't surprise me that a lot of people found commonalities in my experience because it's estimated that about 40% of the population of the human population are neurodivergent. And that includes autism, ADHD, dyspraxia, dyslexia, Tourette's syndrome. It's estimated that that's 40% of the population and a huge people are undiagnosed and just going about their life with the environment creating stresses that they shouldn't have to deal with. And that makes me annoyed because a lot of neurodivergence is medically classed as a disorder and 40% is a a large number. I don't see how 40% can be a disorder and I certainly don't experience my neurodiversity as a disorder and that's speaking for myself purely. I experience context-specific inconveniences, like if I'm at a wedding or in the barbers. But the rest of the time, I'm by myself, having wonderful fun, exploring ideas and my passions and interests. And that enriches my life and gives me personal meaning. And for me personally, it has helped me greatly to excel professionally across multiple different disciplines in my career for more than a decade and anyone who'd call that a disorder doesn't understand it the disorder that I see is society deciding that there's there's one type of brain and this type of brain is normal and correct and ideal and anything that deviates from that is abnormal or disordered I can't accept that because I'm my own personal proof that it isn't true. It's that strict rule and the strict societal structures that are made around that rule that put me in mental health difficulty. Not my brain, the structures that my brain is expected to adhere to. That's what creates emotional unease for me. Put it this way, someone who's dyslexic is considered neurodivergent. A dyslexic person has difficulty with the written word well what if that dyslexic person grew up in an oral culture 
where spoken word is the thing and writing doesn't exist, such as 300 years ago in an agrarian society where not everybody gets the privilege of going to school and learning how to read. That was a lot of our ancestors. Like, why do you think pubs are called the spotted dog or the horse and hound or the king's head? Because that tradition comes from a time when most people couldn't read. So the pub would have a painting of a spotted dog, not the words of the spotted dog, a painting of a spotted dog hanging outside and everybody would call it the spotted dog. What a wonderful world for a dyslexic person to exist in. That's a neurodivergent, friendly way to name your pub. Well, that person might not experience any difficulty whatsoever existing in society because the rule that in order to exist in society you must be able to read wouldn't exist. So society creates the disorder, not the person. Now that person is less likely to self-shame, less likely to experience depression, less likely to experience intense anxiety around reading, because the cultural structure and demands don't exist. And also the, the rule that to be intelligent you must be able to read, that's a social construct. When more and more people started to receive education, reading was part of this education, and then we falsely began to associate the quality of reading with the quality of intelligence. And then we started to shame people who can't read by calling them stupid. That's all a social construct. And if you know any dyslexic people, you'll know that their intelligence is not affected by their inability to comprehend words. So I think it's healthier for us to move towards a view of humanity that there's not just one type of brain and this brain is normal, that there's many different types of brains and that there is neurodiversity. Um, but I just want to say thank you to all the messages of support 99.9% fully supportive empathic DMs that I got from people apologies if I didn't reply I got an awful lot of DMs um, the 1.1% see I can't do maths so I don't know whatever is the 999 the 0.1% of people who gave responses that I wasn't too happy with half of them would have been complete and utter psychopaths who wanted to say something mean those people exist and then the other half of that 1% would have been well-meaning people who were a little bit patronising people who meant well but they were saying like protect blind boy at all costs which I know is well-meaning but it's kind of patronising because I'm a confident assertive intelligent adult and I know how to I know what goals I want I know how to achieve them I know how to operate in life I have all of the skills to exist without needing protection and more so please don't offer to protect me at all costs because I can protect myself all I'm looking for really is a free pass if someone invites me to their wedding that's it no, no one uh, no, I'm not saying podcast listeners were inviting me to their weddings I mean people I know in real life because I'm in my 30s, so I'm not gone out to fucking nightclubs and shit like that. The vast majority of stressful social opportunities that I'm given come in the form of wedding invitations. And it's a really difficult situation because I don't want to go to people's weddings. But when you, 
when you refuse a wedding invitation, that's perceived as incredibly rude. So I want my autism diagnosis to give me a little free pass for that. If I get invited to a wedding, I'd like to be able to say, that's a bit stressful for me. I might spend six months worrying about that now. Is it okay if I don't come to your wedding? And if I say I'm not coming to your wedding, that you don't take that as a gigantic personal insult. And it is possible for me to say I'd rather not come to your wedding while at the same time being really happy for you that you're getting married. And if you're doing something before the wedding where it's like a smaller group of people getting together to celebrate the fact that you're getting married, I'll come to that, not a bother. But the actual big wedding wedding with 80 strangers asking me how I know you, asking me what I do, I'd rather not come to that bit. Is that okay? Because that's, that's all I want. That's, that's pretty much all I want with my autism diagnosis. The ability to do that. And once I have that, I'm grand. Plus, and I've only started to realise this in the past week after I've been reappraising my life, anyone who's neurodivergent, autistic, or even just a bit socially awkward will know that when you get invited to weddings, you get put at the lunatic table anyway. Like anytime there's a big wedding, like a hundred people or more, there's always that one table. The one table which is as far away from the speeches as possible with the fucking misfits. There's me, the person who sells coke, the drunk uncle, the person who couldn't find a date, the rabid conspiracy theorist, the person who's involved in multi-level marketing and they're going to try and use the wedding as an opportunity to sell everybody vitamins, the person who pretends that they're a guard and has been arrested for pretending to be a guard, the person who went to Australia, normal, but came back with dreadlocks, oh, do you know who's at that table? The family member, like the brother of the groom, who definitely should be up at the main table with the rest of the family, right? But they're not because he's fighting with the groom or fighting with the rest of the family. And they couldn't not invite him and he's only there as an act of passive aggression because to not come would mean his brother, the groom, wins. That's the cunt you don't want at the table. He's the buzzkill. If that person is at the lunatic table... There's no chance of crack. That's the worst person. And he's the only person really that deserves to be there. Because everyone else is kind of harmless. Just a bit odd. Who else have we got at this table? The person who'll bring a ferret in their jacket. That's real. That happened. I sat beside that person at a wedding. It was incredible. I loved every minute of it. Learned shit tons about ferrets. Who else is at the table? The person who doesn't belong at that table. But their date is going to get too drunk too early and will definitely try and have sex with someone who is getting married at the wedding. And who else? Um, the person who has loads of tattoos, right? But it's not the tattoos. It's that when they're at a wedding, they take their top off to show everybody their tattoos. Do you know who's not invited to that table, but they always end up at that table? Some young fella who's working at the wedding right some like porter who's working at the wedding who's a bit of a mad cunt 
and then he ends up like being a part of the wedding and unofficially joining the table and like definitely losing his job like that's the best part it's like he has given up his job as a porter in the hotel and is now part of the wedding and has lost his job because he's decided that the crack is more important than his job and then the last person who else is on this fucking table maybe a dissident republican and this is how you can tell a dissident republican at a wedding right because they're they're wearing the wedding clothes they're wearing their tux they're all dressed up to go to a wedding but they've got a grandfather shirt on and that's how you spot a dissident republican at a wedding so that's the table that I <laughs> so when I go to a fucking wedding that's the table I'm putting every time every single fucking time so I kind of want to go to a fucking wedding now <laughs> actually no weddings aren't too bad now when, I'm, when I think of the tables I'm put at but look everyone knows that fucking table at the wedding everyone knows that table and I don't know it's when you end up at that table I hear, here's what I don't like about it it's like it lets you know oh shit this is how people speak about you behind your back so if if I don't want to come to your wedding um, just that's not a personal slight I'd, I'd literally I'd be I'd rather be at home reading about the history of toilets in the Byzantine Empire that's what I want to be doing that's my comfort zone and I wish you the best in all your future endeavours and your marriage but you know what though yeah if you if you're putting away if you're listening to this now and you're getting married in the next year or whatever and you're putting your wedding together you know what I'm talking about everyone knows that table that I'm talking about it doesn't have a name but if you're putting a wedding together you know that fucking table because you're planning your wedding you're planning your guests you're deciding who sits beside who and you have the leftovers you have a group of about six people and they are they are the leftovers because when you were deciding who sits where you're going nah I, c- I can't put them beside my aunt I can't put that person beside my boss I can't put them beside my cousin so you're left with all these people and you go fuck it gotta put them all together at one table and then you go shit that's a lot of lunatics now you've a problem this is why I don't think the lunatic table is the right solution because now you've got a problem now you have multiple people who by themselves might be a bit awkward but now they're all together so you're like fuck it's like it's like holding a bomb it's like where do I put this bomb so you kind of say yourself and your your wife to be or your husband to be you say it to yourself right fuck it let's put we have to put them down the back alright because we can't have them fucking with the speeches alright we're videotaping the speeches this is our day we can't have that table fucking with the speeches in any way they, they might be noisy because they're all together now you created this situation you've put you've put us all together so we have to put them down at the back but the problem is if you think of how Irish weddings like the the average Irish function room at a hotel what's down at the back the emergency exit in the bar so you think you've solved the problem you haven't you've just actually made a problem and I'm saying this as a, as a veteran of the lunatic table first and foremost 
Everyone who's at the lunatic table sits there, looks around and goes, shit, I'm at the lunatic table. We all feel a little bit of unconscious rejection and anger. Not a lot, but just enough that we kind of accept our role. If you put me at the lunatic table at the wedding, it's a bit disappointing. And then I go, fuck it, okay. I guess I'm a lunatic. So we rile each other up. We rile each other up. And we're the closest to the bar. And we're the closest to the emergency exit. So while everyone else is having their dinner and chanting, we're down at the back, excluded. And someone says, do you want a double whiskey? I do. Yes, please. Uh, Do you want to smoke fags? I do. Sure, the emergency exit is just there. Let's go out and smoke fags. Now dessert is being served. I'm several whiskeys in, talking about Bobby Sands with a dissident Republican, smoking cigarettes indoors. And we're all laughing too loudly because the fella beside me is showing us all how his ferret can fit perfectly into a pint glass. <laughs> that happened. <laughs> the, the ferret's name was uh, Angel. <laughs> it was a ferret called Angel. It was a girl ferret. And she was tame as fuck. She'd be climbing up his suit in his arms, jumping into the pint glass, fucking on real crack. But you get what I'm saying. The lunatic table at the wedding doesn't work. If you're planning a wedding, don't go with the lunatic table. Find the people who don't fit, take a risk, and put them sitting beside your aunt, and you'll be pleasantly surprised. Because if you put me sitting beside your aunt, and not the lunatic table, then I'm going to feel the social responsibility of that. And you've given me a new role now. The role you've given me is don't speak to the groom's aunt about the complex history of bananas and the CIA and Honduras. And I won't, because I respect the fact that you've put me sitting beside your aunt. So no lunatic tables, they don't work. They don't work. And you know what? In defence of the lunatic table, in defence of the people who are put at the lunatic table, as soon as the DJ starts, right? Not the band and not the dances. As soon as the dances are over, the DJ starts at about half ten. Who are the first ones on the dance floor? Who are the ones that are now the ministers for crack at the wedding? Everyone who was put at the lunatic table. And after about 11, half 11, your aunt wants to be at the lunatic table. Everyone at the wedding wants to be at the lunatic table. And then chaos, that's how your aunt gets ridden. That's how your aunt... (laughs) You could have avoided this. You could have avoided this if you didn't create the lunatic table is what I'm saying could have had a better wedding what's the most socially awkward thing I've done at a wedding Um, this was in my 20s and I probably had fuck all money and I was at a wedding and the groom didn't drink so at the end of the night I asked him for a lift home I asked the groom for a lift home on the night of his own wedding (laughs) and then just (laughs) everyone who heard it jaws dropped around the floor (laughs) and then I went alright okay yeah I forgot it's your wedding that I'm at that was an Irish wedding tangent that, that I didn't expect to go into but thank you for everybody who was giving me supportive messages last week about my autism diagnosis And I got a few queries as well. People wondering, 
Why didn't I go on television or radio or, or the newspaper to speak about my autism diagnosis? Well, I was contacted by quite a lot of TV, newspapers, etc. But I turned down all the interviews and I'll tell you why. It's a, a, a lack of trust at the moment, not in the journalists, like all the people who were asking me to speak about my autism on the radio or TV. These people were being quite respectful and they would have handled it with respect and they were being compassionate and they were giving me a platform. But I don't really trust the people who write the headlines. So when you go on the radio and you do an interview, then it immediately, because it's on the radio, it immediately gets turned into a news article. And the people who write those headlines, I think they outsource it. And they don't write headlines that are fair or compassionate. Like a fair and compassionate headline would be Blind by a Ball Club speaks about his autism diagnosis. That's a straight up headline. They wouldn't do that. What they'd do is they would pick something inconsequential, something I said in the interview and run with that as the headline. And unfortunately the headline they'd pick would be whatever is most likely to get people really pissed off on Facebook so that it drives up engagement and I knew that's what would happen because it's, it's a really shitty thing about established media at the moment so I didn't want to do that I didn't have the headspace to see a bunch of people's dads on Facebook saying mean things about me because I've been misrepresented in a headline and I'm not being paranoid there and speaking about speaking from experience like at the very start of the pandemic the very start, the first two months before all the anti-mask stuff, there was a wonderful two months at the start of the pandemic where everyone was really frightened but there was also a collective mood of we're all in this together and we must all support the nurses and we must all support the doctors and we're going to volunteer and we're all in this together and during those two months there was very little space for anyone being selfish in any way that wasn't allowed so I went on the radio to speak about the impacts that the pandemic was going to have on the live industry I used my voice to to speak up for other people who didn't have a voice I mean people working in lighting people working in sound doormen people running shows I wanted to go on the radio and say this pandemic is going to be bad for an entire industry and I was using my voice and platform to do that So I did, and then during the interview, which I used to speak on behalf of other people, they asked the question, and how has it been for you, Blind Boy? And I answered truthfully. I said, fucking terrible. All my gigs are cancelled. My work is gone. I don't know when I'm going to gig again. This is an awful thing that has happened to me. So what did the people who write the headlines do? They ran with just that. So they wrote headlines that took just that bit completely misrepresented me and painted me as an absolute selfish bastard who would go on the radio to complain about how the pandemic has been terrible for me and me alone. It was a, it was quite a sneaky um, and shitty thing to do to me just for the sake of getting a, a million dads incredibly angry on Facebook in the comments to drive up engagement. So because of that... I was fucking getting harassed for weeks. Fucking people furious because they'd read this headline thinking that I'm a selfish bollocks. So that left me with um, a distrust 
around established media when it comes to something serious. So I was like, fuck it. I don't I don't want to do it this week. I'm going to speak about my autism diagnosis on this podcast alone. Because even though there's a million people listening to this, this is quite a safe space. Everyone listening to this is sound and supportive. Actually, there was one piece. I was contacted by a journalist called Mike McGrath from The Examiner, who he himself is autistic and he recently got an adult diagnosis of autism and he wrote a lovely article about this two weeks ago in The Examiner. But because Mike McGrath is autistic, he came to me and said, would you mind if I quoted some stuff in the podcast and wrote an article about it? So I gave a thumbs up for that because I knew that he would not only handle it respectfully, but make sure that the headline didn't represent anything, misrepresent anything in the article. So this week, I'm going to do a question-answering podcast. And the reason I'm doing that is... The support and love I received from ye this week really, really made me appreciate all of you who listen to this podcast. And you're always asking me questions, always asking me, speak about this, speak about that. Can you talk about this? And I don't do enough fucking podcasts where I address listener questions... So I want to do that for you this week. So I'm going to answer as many questions as I can. So Megan asks, What is your favourite Jojo song? Now I love that question, Megan, because I don't know how the fuck you know I'm a fucking fan of an artist called Jojo because I don't think I've mentioned it on this podcast. So fair play to you, Megan. Um, Jojo is an R&B singer who... I followed her for years. I'm just... I think she's incredibly talented. I adore her. And the reason is, is that... So Jojo... Had a huge song in like 2004 called Leave, Get Out. And if you heard it, you definitely know it. Because it was massive. And she was only like a kid at the time. And then she went real quiet. There wasn't much after that. And I went reading up about her about 10 years ago and it was like she got badly fucked over by the record industry. Jojo was supposed to be like the next Britney Spears, the next Christina Aguilera. She was supposed to be huge but she got involved in a really bad record deal. The record company went bust and she was locked into a contract and basically for most of her 20s she couldn't release any music. And I always followed her because I just found it was heartbreaking that you had someone with so much talent unable to release music. And now she's in her 30s, she'd be about 33, and she's existing as a pop singer kind of independently, which I love seeing. I love seeing someone who's doing like mainstream pop, but they're not with a giant label. They don't have a bunch of money behind them. They're playing small venues and they're just fucking persevering with something they love with a shit ton of talent. So I adore Jojo. I love her music. She's a great performer. She has a wonderful voice. And my favourite Jojo song is called Joanna. And it's a song she released about two years ago. I think when she was 30. And it's a song she wrote to her younger self. It's a song... It's beautiful because it's it's a song she wrote to like 16 year old her who never got a chance. 
it's her speaking to herself saying you were supposed to be huge you were supposed to be big you were supposed to be this and that but it never happened and there's such lo- there's just lovely self-compassion in it I just love it so that's my favourite Jojo song Joanna and Megan I haven't a fucking clue how you know that I'm a, a fan of Jojo because that's one of my niche interests another music question QC359 asks who's my favourite Wu-Tang Clan artist and why Ghostface Killer I've always been a huge fan of Ghostface Killer from the Wu-Tang Clan because his music first off he chooses the best producers Ghostface really pioneered the use of soul samples in hip hop like way before Kanye also Ghostface as a rapper he raps in a stream of consciousness style which when he was doing it like Ghostface's best album is called Supreme Clientele it's possibly my favourite rap album I'm not sure it's in my top three and Ghostface raps in a stream of consciousness style that's incredibly similar to how James Joyce writes Ghostface in one sentence will have a thought from the inside of his head words that come out of someone else's mouth and then maybe like a newspaper headline all three of those things in the same sentence effectively creating an entire scene through multiple internal and external viewpoints using language and that's fucking Ulysses that's what makes James Joyce Ulysses so revolutionary that it's not just words that are spoken by the character's mouth but it's words as they're formed in the character's mind before they turn into words that come out of their mouth then that is interrupted by words that actually come out of their mouth and then you'll have an observation that that person makes in their mind before they speak so James Joyce tried to write the full gamut of what it is like to think and exist in the world as a human being the inside of the brain and Ghostface does the exact same thing with his rapping style and I've always been fascinated with that about Ghostface and Ghostface is also incredibly surreal and weird I've always loved how weird he was he's got about 24 songs about deck shoes remember the deck shoes that like rugby players used to wear when they went to school those deck shoes do Barry's we used to call them. Ghostface is obsessed with them. He calls them wallabies. And on the front cover of one of his albums. It's just him looking like a drug dealer. Except he's not dealing drugs. He's dying a lot of deck shoes. Multicoloured colours. So when I was a young fella. The name of that album was Iron Man. When I was a young fella I used to have this CD. And I didn't have the internet. And I'd just stare at the cover of that album fucking bemused bemused to the point that I was disturbed going why is my favourite why is my favourite rapper obsessed with deck shoes so much that he's dying in different colours what type of mad cunt is this so I've always loved that about Ghostface he's a a weird bastard also there is a a brilliant book called The Art of Ghostface Killer which was written by a writer from Dublin called Dean Van Noyen and that's fantastic I think it's hard to get 
but it is a, a wonderful book not only about Ghostface but the Wu-Tang in general and the influence of Asian cinema on the Wu-Tang Clan I used to fucking love Wu-Tang when I was growing up I had a Wu-Tang Clan CD and my dad saw it once and he thought it said Wu-Tang Keen and then <laughs> I had a Dr. Dre CD and he called it Deirdre Gavin wants to know does your ma listen to your podcast and what does she think of it she does my mother's in her 80s and my ma listens to my podcast every week and she worries that I'm going to run out of ideas so she says prayers to Flann O'Brien to give me inspiration and she says prayers to Flann O'Brien's brother because Flann O'Brien's my favourite writer hands down Flann O'Brien is my favourite writer but Flann O'Brien's brother used to be like my family doctor he lived in Limerick and my man knew him really really well his name was Fargus and that's the reason to be honest I even grew up knowing who Flann O'Brien was because Flann O'Brien now is an incredibly important Irish writer and now he's seen as as important as the likes of James Joyce but this is only recent it's only the past 20 years really that Flann O'Brien is getting the literary respect that he deserves but throughout the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s Flann O'Brien wasn't given serious literary respect a lot of his books would have been out of print Flann O'Brien was known mainly as a daily columnist in the Irish Times but his books weren't taken seriously because they were seen as too weird and because he used to use a lot of comedy in his writing like Flann O'Brien has a book that's about a man who turns into a bicycle called The Third Policeman so when I was growing up in the house and my brothers the only reason Flann O'Brien books would have been in my gaff is not because of the great big giant Flann O'Brien but because his, his brother was our family fucking doctor so Flann's books were in the gaff because it's like oh did you hear that the did you hear the doctor's brother has written a lot of books so my ma or my dad would have bought them out of curiosity and then they were in my house growing up and that's what I used to read and they're the stories that my, my brothers used to tell me and stuff and a lot of literary critics would have been given quite a hard time if they were taking the writing of Flann O'Brien seriously if they were putting it up there on the level with any of the great Irish writers but now of course he is seen as there's some people who would say that Flann O'Brien invented postmodernism. you know there are serious academics who will say Flann O'Brien invented postmodernism in the 1930s because he has a book called At Swim Two Birds and At Swim Two Birds it's got like two starts like two beginnings three middles four ends like it's mad and what Flann O'Brien did as well with that book which was way 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 ahead of his time way ahead of his time like I think this might have even been the late 1930s At Swim Two Birds was written but he, Flann O'Brien used to, it's a book about a person who's writing a book and then the characters in that book turn around and write a book about the author. It's a book that knows it's a book, which was very unconventional in the 1930s and 40s. That's a tenet of postmodernism that we'd associate much more with the 
1960s onwards. But Flan used to like, he'd take characters from Irish mythology, like Fionn McCool. And then he would take Fionn McCool and write Fionn McCool into like an American Western and have Fionn McCool interacting with American cowboys and mix and blend genres that don't belong together for their ironic, humorous purposes in the 1940s in a way that, like, Tarantino was doing in the 1990s with Pulp Fiction. So that's why some people call Flann O'Brien the inventor of postmodernism. So, yeah, my ma listens to the podcast and then she gets awful worried that I'm going to run out of ideas. So she goes to bed and says prayers to Flann O'Brien and then out of politeness, Flann O'Brien's brother who she knew, so that they will give me inspiration <laughs> from beyond the dead. Gary asks, how are my two cats? Look at me racing through the fucking questions here, lads. Jesus Christ, I've answered about four questions in ten minutes. My two cats are fantastic. Silken Thomas and Napper Tandy. They're both wild cats. They're both stray cats. They will never be tame. There's no way to tame them. Silken Thomas is deaf he has impaired eyesight. His sister, Napper Tandy, looks after him. She was very sick last August. She had a, an abscess on her mouth. Very sick to the point that I was worried that she was going to die. She recovered perfectly. They're doing fantastically. I feed him every morning. I'm not allowed to rub him. I'm never going to be able to rub him. They live in a little house. They're two happy cats. And I've accepted that, like, I'm never going to have a, a connection with them. They're too wild. They'll always keep about a foot away from me. I can never touch them. It's fine. We, wor- we work it out together. It's absolutely fine. What I like doing is... I love that two little stray cats, brother and sister, have got a happy, comfortable fucking life and a small little house that keeps them dry and warm and guaranteed food every day. And they just want to chill out. Recently the weather's been getting better. Which is lovely to see because their entire posture changes. As soon as the the weather gets better they lounge a bit more. And they want the sun on their bellies. In the winter it's different. They huddle up together. It's cold. They sleep together in their bed and they keep warm. But as a pair of cats they both very much love the sun. They adore the sunlight. So they're really appreciating the sunlight at the moment. Now a third cat has shown up. There's a lot of wild cats where I'm living. And they're very territorial with certain... There's about five or six different gangs of cats where I'm living. And... I have to kind of judge by Napper Tandy and Silk and Thomas what cats are okay and what cats aren't. So certain cats aren't allowed into their territory. They're hunted out immediately. But other cats are allowed in. And... What I find so beautiful is I leave out the food for my two cats in the morning and they always leave a bit of food for certain other cats to come in. So there's this new orange tabby cat that started wandering around the place. Now I can't establish a bond with him because I can't have three cats. Three cats is a tipping point. I can't do three cats. Three cats is a problem. So I have two cats and this third orange cat that comes to visit 
he's only allowed there because Silken Thomas and Napper Tandy decide that he's allowed. He's allowed to lounge with him. He's not allowed into their bed. He lounges with him and they leave him some food. I won't give him a name because as soon as I name him, now I've got three fucking cats. And that's not happening. That can't happen. That's the tipping point. And once I go over that tipping point, it's fucking chaos. I've thought about naming him. I'm not, you know... He looks a bit like uh, the actor Tim Roth. And... (laughs) He does. He's got a bang at Tim Roth. Tim Roth, when he was in that film Rob Roy with Liam Neeson. He's got that look about him. But I have to avoid the gaze of this fucking orange tabby. I can't let that little cat connection happen. I can't lock eyes. Because then they bring you into that cat fucking magic that they do. So I won't do that. But I'll never shun him away. I won't hunt him away because... I don't create the rules there. That's Silken Thomas and Napper Tandy. That's their space. And if they decide that this orange tabby is welcome in their space... Then I have to adhere to, to their fucking rules and respect that. That'd be like me going to someone's wedding... And then kicking a person out of someone else's wedding. I can't do that. I better do my fucking ocarina pause now. I've gone over time. I don't have my uh, ocarina now. I'm inside my office. I'm in my office. And it's very late. It's coming up to 12 o'clock at night in my office. And I think I'll be going a little bit longer. Um, I don't like leaving the fucking office too late on a weekday night. Because it's in the middle of Limerick City. And weekday nights in Limerick City after 12 it's a little bit bleak the pubs and stuff aren't really open and it's just like ball boys out on the street looking for some hassle so I'm just going to dive into my taxi let's do the kombucha pause I was drinking some kombucha earlier which do you know what I think a lot of kombucha is bullshit I think if if, if you buy that the expensive shit that you get in organic shops and it's in glass bottles I reckon that's legitimate kombucha but there's other kombucha and they call it kombucha but it's in a plastic bottle and it's a bit too fizzy and I doubt it has a lot of probiotics in it because that's why I'm drinking fucking kombucha for the probiotics because they're good for the gut and if you look after your gut you look after your head so let's have a kombucha pause I'm gonna tap the bottle of kombucha and then maybe try and generate some sounds from the blowhole Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 
Sounds a bit a bit like the ocarina if the ocarina if it had big baggy expanded holes. At least that won't disturb any dogs. That was the kombucha pause. Support for this podcast comes from or you would have heard an advert there. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. This podcast is my full-time job. This podcast is how I earn a living. I adore making this podcast. Um, the only way I'm able to make this podcast every single week is if I do it as a full-time job. I adore this work. But if you enjoy consuming this work, please consider paying me for that work. If it brings you any bit of joy or distraction or solace or entertainment, or whatever the fuck, if you're, if you're consuming this podcast, just please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. What I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. If you listen to this podcast and you say to yourself, fuck it, I like that. If I met Blind Boy in real life, I would buy him a pint. Well, you can via the Patreon page. But if you can't afford it, if you don't have the money right now, don't worry about it. You can listen to this podcast for free because the person who can afford to pay me for my work is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast. I get to earn a living and it's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. Also, the Patreon model keeps this podcast independent. I'm a bit like my two cats, Napper Tandy and Silken Thomas, in that I get to decide what advertisers come and advertise on this podcast. And I get to tell some of them to fuck off. Most importantly, because I don't rely on advertisers for this podcast, no advertiser can tell me what content to create, adjust my content in any way, influence it, control my content. If any of them try to do it, I'll just say, this podcast isn't for you. Bye bye. So only through that process do I get to actually make a quality podcast. Because the thing about quality podcasting is it needs to be made by a small independent team. And for me, I don't even have a team. It's just me. But the, the key to a quality podcast is it needs to be made by a team of people or one creator who genuinely love what they're doing and are genuinely putting out a podcast that they care about. And that's what I do. Whatever the fuck I talk about each week. I talk about it because I want to and because I'm passionate about it. And that authentic congruence is what creates the podcast hug. And it's why certain podcasts are very enjoyable and things like radio often aren't very enjoyable. Because with radio, it's a space that's very much taken over by advertising and money and creativity is not the priority. So by supporting not just my podcast, but any independent podcast that you enjoy, by directly supporting those podcasts, you facilitate quality. Because the general podcast space at the moment is becoming quite fucking god-awful bad. There's so many new podcasts all the time. Advertisers are fucking money at creators to just sit down and talk to each other, throw some shit at the wall and... We don't even care if the podcast is good. We're going to sell it based on your names. And all these huge podcasts with big names are filling up the space 
and small independent creators just get pushed to the bottom and are not heard anymore. So that's the space that small independent podcasters are fighting in. So support small independent podcasts. Am I going to be on Twitch this week? Yes, I will. Twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast this Thursday at half eight. I won't be on Twitch next week because I'm in Spain next week writing my book. I'm going to have a little writing week in Cordoba or Cordoba in Spain. I'm going to get a bunch of shit written and hopefully I might bring my microphone with me and do a little a little outdoor podcast which I haven't done in ages. I might do a little a walking podcast or something. I haven't done that in so long. Also upcoming gigs um in May I've got a gig in Madrid, a gig in Barcelona. Just look up Blind by Live Podcast Barcelona and Madrid if you want tickets. There's not a lot of tickets left. Then I'm gigging in Brussels. I'm gigging in Brussels in June, I think. I'm pretty sure those tickets are on sale. I'm really looking forward to that. I didn't even know I had listeners in fucking Brussels. And in June, I don't know are these on sale yet, but I will be doing a tour of England and Scotland. Not sure about Wales, but... I'll be doing gigs in England and Scotland, right? Uh, London, Glasgow, I think Bristol, Manchester and Liverpool. I think one of them might be wrong. I'm shit at at advertising my own gigs, lads, all right? We're just going to have to cope with this. Actually, I am getting a website soon. I'm getting a website soon where I can update my gigs. And then when I have this website, I'll just say to you, Go to this website and there's all my gigs. I don't think I've any Irish gigs for a while. So, Silicon Batman wants to know, How does one deal with moving back in with your parents? I have to move home due to financial reasons and some advice would be greatly appreciated. Oh, Okay, so... Moving back in with your parents presents a number of challenges. And they're not the challenges you'd think of. This is what you'd have to be careful of. If, if you're an adult, right, in your fucking late 20s and your 30s and you're moving back in with your parents, here's the number one thing you have to be mindful of. And I'm going to take this from family systems psychology. When you return to what's known as your family of origin, right? So you're a grown adult. You have your separate adult identity. You've been feeding yourself You've been paying your own way. You've been renting. You have been living as an autonomous adult. And you feel like an adult. And you have your adult personality and identity that you've developed while being an autonomous adult. Well, when we move back into our parents, this can be quite threatening to our sense of self. And we can, without knowing it, emotionally regress. I always use Christmas time as an example of this. When you go back home at Christmas and you're there with your family, you can end up behaving in ways that are like weird. Because what happens is the family system, the family of origin that you return to, you'll end up behaving emotionally kind of how you did when you were a child. So if you used to fight with your brother a lot when you were seven, or your sister. If you meet them as an autonomous adult for dinner in a hotel, you might not have a fight with them 
because it's two adults talking to each other. But when you return home and your parents are present and you're in the house that you grew up in and you're in that structure, you'll end up fighting with your sister or your brother like you were fucking seven. So the threat is when you move back home is maintaining your sense of self and identity. You don't want to start feeling like a kid again because the thing is when you start to feel like a child because you're at home with your fucking parents what can happen is that your self-esteem will be affected like you won't feel that sense of freedom that you have as an adult to make your own choices and to have your own opinions so your, your self-esteem will be impacted because you might start feeling more childish reactionary emotions your sense of autonomy might be affected by which I mean when you're a child you're not fully autonomous your parents when you're a kid your parents can tell you what to do your parents decide things about your life your parents can provide you with food your parents can provide you with transport that's what being a kid is like as an adult when you return home you need to be mindful that you don't fall back into any of those patterns so what I would say to you is and this is going to be tough if you're living at home and not like and as an autonomous adult you are making your own dinners we'll say you're preparing your own dinners in your apartment that you lived as an adult when you return home maybe don't get involved in the family dinner if your ma or your da says to you I'm putting on bacon and cabbage do you want some maybe try not to get into that habit once again if you go back into the habit of I'm living at home with ma and da and now I'm eating the dinners that ma and da are making and you're doing it every single day you're giving away a little bit of power right there and you're going to lose your sense of autonomy and confidence before you know it what are you doing you're not washing your own fucking clothes you're getting your jocks and your t-shirts and you're putting them into the basket beside the washing machine and you're expecting your ma or your da to wash them then what happens next you're back in your old bedroom in the house that you've moved back into as in your 30s and you go off to work in the morning and your bedroom's a little bit messy and then you come home in the evening and what's happened? Your ma or your dad was bored and they went in and they cleaned your fucking room and what's happened there is like all of that is very tempting. That's very tempting. Someone is making your dinner, washing your clothes and cleaning your fucking room very tempting who doesn't want that but what's happening there is you're in, you're entering a regressive contract with your parents your parents don't know they're doing it either but if you as a grown adult allow your parents to start behaving in ways that they would have when you were a kid i.e doing shit for you and then you allow that you will find yourself slipping back into old patterns you'll find yourself emotionally regressing so you come back from a long day at work being a responsible adult in work with with responsibilities you come home from work and now all of a sudden your ma or your dad shouts at you and says stop leaving your underpants in the fucking in the hallway and then you immediately go shut up ma shut up and leave me alone and then you slam the door of your bedroom now you've engaged in a teenage tantrum in your fucking thirties and it will creep up on you this dynamic will sneak up on you you've returned to your family of origins you regress to old dynamics 
and then that has a knock-on effect on your sense of self-esteem and your sense of confidence, you end up having, you end up, you will drift towards living the internal world of a teenager or a child and the work that you've put in into becoming an adult can kind of disappear slightly. And then you go into work and your boss asks you to do something and instead of responding assertively and confidently like an adult, now you're sulking with your boss and you're sulking with your boss as if your boss is a parent and you're a child and this can all happen outside of our awareness and it can have quite a bad impact on how we feel about ourselves and then you'll start doubting your own capacity to make decisions and after a long enough time you might start doubting your capacity to stand on your own two feet as an adult maybe you moved home because you're trying to save for a mortgage well after a year or two you might start to think fuck it I'll never be able to live in a house on my own I'm only a child so these are the dangers of moving back home as an adult you might emotionally regress to being a kid and that's deeply unhelpful as an adult that's not helpful at all so how do you stop that what I would do in that situation is I would begin by not allowing my behaviour how I behave to regress back to childhood so I'd wash my own fucking clothes and I'd make a point of doing it even though you are in behave more like a lodger you're in your parents house that's fine that's grand behave like a fucking lodger you're not there as as their child even though you are their child behave as a lodger wash your own clothes clean your own room if there's dinner being offered avoid it not all the time but if the reason for taking a dinner is convenience then don't do it pretend you're a lodger and you make your own meals or you offer to cook the meal for the entire family but most importantly maintain your fucking boundaries as an adult and don't allow yourself to fall back in because we don't know we're doing it All you're, you're going to fall back into old patterns your parents will be the same and you will be the same and before you know it you're going to be throwing fucking tantrums in your 30s you'll be smoking hash listening to Eminem Peter asks I'll do this as my last question because it's almost an hour Peter asks I'd always like to hear your views on cancel culture. I generally tend to avoid this one. But one thing I will say. So discourse around cancel culture or so-called cancel culture. There's one thing that I don't see people focusing on enough. And that's the forum within which discussions or arguments happen. Social media, right... People people have incredibly important discussions about race, sexuality, gender. All of the most important discussions happen on websites where the algorithm is specifically geared towards people having the most reactionary emotions. So therefore, it's almost impossible to have any type of debate or discussion about a sensitive issue that requires nuance, compassion and context. You can't have these discussions on somewhere like Twitter or Facebook or TikTok because the very place where you're talking 
is pitted against reasonable, rational, compassionate discourse. If you argue with someone about anything on Twitter, there can be no positive outcome because the algorithm is pitted against you both. It's not an argument. It's points-based combat under the rules of a video game where you only have a certain limited amount of words to use and the nature because it's points based combat so with a Twitter argument I say something, you say something and the observers award us points for our argument via likes that naturally pushes all discussion towards something that's reactionary and excessively angry and all context is removed human emotion is removed body language is removed and the most fucked up part that exists because it makes billionaires money the more reactionary you get online the more angry you get online the more anxious you get online the more you argue online the data of your behaviour is what's being mined so that's what I like to think about I don't think about cancel culture I want to ask the question of why are we having such important conversations in a hostile environment that is actively designed to destroy any argument in favour of reactionary emotions so that billionaires can earn money. It's as if billionaires have created this false forum where we think we can actually discuss things but what it is actually is this weird video game where we have the illusion of discussion and the illusion of debate and these cunts make money from it that's a much more interesting conversation to me than even thinking about cancel culture I'm going to answer one more question and I'll answer it quickly heavily discounted historian asks what's my favourite genre of books and how do you write such hard hitting realistic but also highly unrealistic short stories Thank you, heavily discounted historian. That's pretty kind. Favourite genre? Magical realism, I suppose. Is that my favourite genre? Magical realism. I quite like magical realism. I like the work of uh, George Louis Borges and Mariana Enriquez. They're both Argentinian writers. How do I write... Hard-hitting, realistic, but also highly unrealistic short stories. I... I always... I use a technique called the unreliable narrator. So when I write a short story, my short stories are utterly mad. Like very, very bizarre, fantastical, impossible things can happen in my short stories. But I never break the rules of reality. Ever. Like even a short story in my last book called Mara. Where a girl moves to Barcelona and becomes convinced that her next door neighbour is Donald Duck. Or even last week I mentioned a short story called The Hellfire Scum. Where a character in the book believes that he has a tweed jacket that can rip the fabric of time. Or even a short story in my first book called Arse Children, where 
Eamon de Valera, no, Michael Collins gets Eamon de Valera pregnant because the immaculate womb of Holy Mary is in Eamon de Valera's bowels. And then Eamon de Valera gets pregnant in his immaculate bowels and gives birth to 11 basketball-sized children out of his arse. All of these scenarios are utterly mad, right? But I never break the rules of reality. With the story of Mara, where the girl believes, that the woman believes that her neighbour might be Donald Duck, it all happens in her mind. And she's the one telling the story. Well, the story is, that story is told in second person singular, which means that it's, it's, it's not told by her words in her mouth, it's told by her self-talk, it's told by her conscious mind speaking to herself. It's that second person singular where you say, you, you, you. So, we the reader, we don't know that her next door neighbour is Donald Duck. It happens in her mind. And what I'm always trying to play with is mental illness, mental health, paranoia, absurdity. At what point in my character's journey does she believe that her fucking next door neighbour is actually Donald Duck? And how can we believe that? Or should we trust this narrator? That's the unreliable narrator. Should, should I trust this person that's telling me the story? Is the next door neighbour actually Donald Duck or is the person telling this story going mad? Similarly with the Hellfire Scum. That story is a conversation between two characters. Two characters, two friends who haven't met up in nearly 20 years and one of them suddenly arrives at the door of the other and he tells his friend I haven't seen you in years but I heard that you work in Apple in Cork and I'm here to tell you that I have a tweed jacket and this jacket is so abrasive that it can rip the fabric of time and I can turn into a half an hour and his friend is going along with him listening and all the friend wants to do is talk about the old days but this dude is like no 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 I need to tell you about this jacket that can rip the fabric of time and then it emerges that I've come to you after all these years because you work in Apple in Cork And I believe that my tweed jacket that can rip the fabric of time, I believe that Apple can put this into iPhones and we can use this fabric that can rip time. We can put it into phones and we can edit reality. We can edit the events of reality the way that we would edit a social media post. So all of that is fucking mad. That's bonkers. But it never actually happens in reality. It doesn't happen in the reality of my story. My story is firmly grounded in the rules of actual reality. And any of the madness that occurs on the page happens in the mind of one of the characters. And we, the reader, don't know whether to believe him or not. So I never use fantasy. I never break the rules of what can actually happen in reality. Because if you use fantasy, you can do whatever you want. I don't like that. I like to be adhere to the structures of reality and play instead with paranoia and anxiety because the thing is when I write a short story I'm often engaging in a form of catharsis where I'm I'm playing with the deeply irrational parts of myself like when I used to get severe anxiety and very bad anxiety attacks 
I would entertain quite irrational concepts. And when you are really anxious, you'll start to doubt yourself and wonder whether they're real or not. I spent a year literally afraid of my shadow because I didn't have the self-confidence to understand the difference between me and my shadow. The story about Eamon de Valera getting pregnant in his arse. That doesn't happen either. I do this whole story about Eamon de Valera is, is, has the womb of Holy Mary in his, in his bowels. And then when you get to the end of that story, you realise this is actually a story within a story. And the main character in the story actually wrote this story and published it online. So even still, no rules of reality are broken. So that's how I, I write stories that are realistic but also completely unrealistic. I often use the technique of the unreliable narrator and I never ever break the rules of reality. Any irrationality happens within the mind of a character who you don't know whether you can trust or not. And I love doing that. That's how I enjoy writing. I enjoy the restrictions of reality and it makes the stories then much more human than if I just wrote something that was utterly batshit mad where anything could happen. I, I, don't, I wouldn't like the untethered freedom of that that would be too much into the sci-fi and fantasy world which isn't something I'm too interested in writing alright dog bless everybody I'll be back next week Um, I was happy to answer your questions this week because I, I'm so appreciative of all the lovely messages you gave me last week so I really wanted to do that and to show ye that I listen to ye so dog bless Rub a dog if you see it. Enjoy the long afternoons. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 